0: Good evening, all. This week, it's time to talk about brain surgery. Brain surgery is a pretty recent development, which makes sense considering how complex and important the brain is in bodily function. However, operations on the head go back thousands of years. Ancient skeletons have been found with holes cut in the skull, a procedure known as trepanation. This was probably done for superstitious reasons, and I would like to reiterate that drilling holes in your skull is not a good idea. But doctors would eventually figure out that there are legitimate reasons to do so. It just took a few thousand years. In the 1800s, trepanation was considered a treatment for severe head wounds. However, when they looked a little more closely, surgeons began to notice that results were not very good. In the American Civil War, such operations killed 125 out of the 220 patients treated, which if you'll notice is more than half. In British hospitals, similar figures were present, with again over half of patients dying from the procedure. All this without any clear benefits. Sometimes on this podcast, we keep doing medical procedures that we should not be doing. Luckily, this is not one of those times, and given such high death tolls, the practice generally fell out of favor. Brain surgery would begin to see a resurgence, though, as we began to understand what different parts of the brain did. Paul Broca, for example, described a case in 1861 of a man who lost all speech abilities and had damage to an area of the brain that we now call Broca's area. He theorized that Broca's area was related to speech processing, and he was right. Through a whole lot of essentially trial and error, we put together a rudimentary map of what each part of the brain does. This was done in two ways. One, like Broca, scientists would look at a case of brain injury and see what problems occurred when certain parts of the brain were damaged. The other was experiments, with purposeful damage or electrical stimulation on the brains of other animals, for the same goal of identifying regions of the brain and what they did. William Masowin, who you may remember as the guy who figured out bone grafts earlier on, was also the first to remove a brain tumor, based on the newly gained knowledge about the brain and its function. In 1879, he studied the signs and symptoms of a 14-year-old girl and predicted that something must be pressing on the front of her left frontal lobe. Masowin opened up her skull and found a tumor exactly where he thought, and upon removal, the patient made a full recovery. As knowledge of brain function spread, so too did reports of similar operations. One of the first specialists was Victor Horsley, who did not restrict himself to neurosurgery, but had a particular interest in it. His first neurological case was in the treatment of epilepsy. His patient suffered 3,000 seizures over two weeks, which is about 214 seizures per day, and was successfully cured with an operation. He planned every operation meticulously, trying to identify via symptoms where the problem was in the brain, and if he was unsure, he would experiment on animals to try to confirm his hypotheses. Even with this extra attention that he gave, Horsley's results were frankly abysmal, and they were so bad that most surgeons turned away from the subject. Given the methods they were using and knowing what we know now, this isn't surprising. The brain is notoriously complicated, and trying to guess which part of the brain is affected via symptoms is a difficult task. Tumors were usually removed by tearing them out with the fingers, which I imagine is quite imprecise. Wounds still became infected, and bleeding killed many a patient, since the brain tends to ooze a lot of blood. All this meant that mortality in brain procedures was really high, with estimates being around 50% and as high as 80% in some tumor operations at this time. By 1900, you could say that neurosurgery existed, but pretty much only for the work of Masowin and Horsley, and many surgeons felt that neurological operations were simply not worth the massive risk at all. Enter Harvey Williams Cushing, who may sound familiar because he was mentioned in our electrocautery episode as one of the earlier adopters of the technology for brain surgery. Cushing worked at Harvard and then Johns Hopkins, where he had his first encounter with an x-ray machine, in fact, the first x-ray ever taken at Johns Hopkins. He used a, quote, decrepit and perverse static machine, as big as a hurdy-gurdy and operated in the same way, by turning a crank. A hurdy-gurdy, by the way, is apparently an old instrument that sounds like a violin and requires cranking by hand. That x-ray was used to examine the spinal cord of a patient who had been shot and pinpoint the location of the bullets for removal, which started Cushing on neurosurgery. In 1903, he decided to specialize in neurosurgery officially, against the advice of his professor, who saw no future in what was at the time a dead subject. Luckily for Cushing, his professor was incredibly wrong. To be fair to the professor, it must have seemed kind of crazy at the time. At the beginning of the 20th century, Horsley again was the only surgeon trying out neurosurgeries with any frequency, and his mortality figures hovered around 40%. When Cushing started out, his results were just as disastrous, but as is often the key, he kept trying and kept experimenting with new techniques. One of the first things Cushing figured out was that tearing tumors out of the brain with your fingers is not good for the patient. He introduced a much gentler method, using swabs to push bits of tumor away. He also invented a special clamp to stop bleeding in the brain, which we mentioned last time as well, as the precursor to the bovie and electrocautery for stopping bleeding. Finally, Cushing realized that if prediction of the afflicted area of the brain was wrong, then a surgery did significantly more harm than good, and so he advocated caution if the location of a tumor was not certain. By 1905, Cushing was the first full-time neurosurgeon, and his results were improving by leaps and bounds. Over the next years, Cushing worked to make himself into a one-man diagnostic and operating team. He was a neurologist, ophthalmologist, physician, scientist, statistician, anatomist, and of course, a surgeon. From 1912 onwards, he specialized even further into brain tumor removal. Just three years later, he had removed some 130 tumors, with a mortality of only 8%, which is, if you'll notice, just a little bit better than Horsley's old 40. As with many medical specialties, World War I was a big turning point, and neurosurgery is no exception. Cushing joined an ambulance unit in 1915, even before the United States actually entered the war. Unsurprisingly, there were a lot of head injuries in World War I, and surgeons, Cushing included, learned that the brain was much more tolerant of surgery than was once thought. When he returned to the States in 1919, Cushing was happy to find that he had some new followers, and together they continued to advance neurosurgery. By 1932, Cushing's surgical mortality on brain tumor removals was down to around 5%. Another well-known neurosurgeon of the time wrote, quote, His mortality indeed appeared so fantastically low to some that they openly refused to credit it. There can be no doubt whatsoever that it was strictly accurate. You know you've done some quality work when people literally do not believe your numbers. Cushing went on to make many more discoveries, most notably of disorders of the pituitary gland, a small structure at the base of the brain responsible for hormonal controls. In 1932, he retired from active surgery to become a professor at Yale, which he did until passing away in 1939. Beyond just his scientific accomplishments, Cushing was incredibly well-liked, being described as lively, funny, and a bit of a prankster, at one point disguising one of his surgeons as a VIP who failed to turn up for surgery, and then parading him around the hospital. He was hardworking and expected the same of any of his colleagues but again was well-liked globally and undoubtedly made massive contributions to the specialty of neurosurgery. Cushing was not the last great neurosurgeon, though. Since Cushing, many advances have been made in diagnostic tools and operation methods. Image technology, for example, has come very far. Let's start with a guy named Walter Dandy. Walter Dandy also studied here at Johns Hopkins, where he actually met Harvey Cushing, and subsequently became interested in neurosurgery. Dandy's list of achievements is also very long, but most notably, he pioneered the procedure of pneumoencephalography in 1918. Pneumoencephalography is a procedure where the cerebrospinal fluid, the liquid surrounding the brain and spine, was drained and replaced with air, oxygen, or helium. This may sound like kind of a weird thing to do, but at the time, doing this made x-rays, the earliest available imaging technology, work much better on the brain. As a result, instead of just guessing based on symptoms where the problem was in the brain, you could actually image the brain and see the tumor, and eliminate the risk of opening up a patient's head in the wrong place. The procedure was still commonly used all the way until the 1970s, when computed tomographic or CT scans were invented, and Dandy almost won a Nobel Prize for the work. Dandy was a little bit less charismatic than Cushing, though, and apparently later in his career they actually butted heads quite frequently. Dandy was generous, willing to see patients free of charge if necessary, but also had a temper and was quite blunt. There are stories of him throwing instruments or firing residents and assistants, and also of Dandy and Cushing being assigned to separate departments because their hospital director was tired of their bickering. However, he deserves a lot of credit, too, and is often cited alongside Cushing as one of the founders of neurosurgery. Another big diagnostic tool was also invented around this time. In 1924, Hans Berger invented the electroencephalogram, or EEG for short. Essentially, this is a way to measure brain activity by measuring electrical signals on the scalp. It is useful in diagnosing a host of problems like epilepsy, brain bleeding, or even just in recognizing responses to stimuli. Berger was undoubtedly brilliant, but also unfortunately has a gigantic pile of skeletons in his closet. Berger financially supported the Nazi SS, and was responsible for some forced sterilizations of the Nazi regime. Yikes. So we're gonna move on from him. After the EEG, much of the improvement in neurosurgery comes from improved imaging techniques. We already briefly mentioned CT scans, which is essentially an upgraded multi-dimension X-ray. Through the work of William Oldendorf, Alan Cormack, and Jeffrey Holmesfield, they figured out how to make a CT scan that could provide not just 2D images, but a 3D reconstruction of the brain. After the CT scan came the MRI, standing for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. MRIs could also provide 3D images of the brain, but at the time provided even better resolution and better contrast. These new imaging technologies provided much more information than older tech, and allowed for all kinds of new diagnoses without having to actually open up the skull, much to the relief of many patients. I'm sure it helped, too, that they also got to skip pneumoencephalography, which was comparatively painful and risky. Finally, in recent years, we have begun not just to image and operate on the brain, but even integrate with it. The first example was cochlear implants, which are devices that pick up sound waves, convert them to electrical pulses, and then stimulate the brain to recreate hearing function. Nowadays, there are devices that can read brain activity and use those readings to control computer cursors or more complex robots. We have neurostimulators for the treatment of mental disorders or even for pain. When you stop and think about it, these devices are quite incredible, and would certainly have seemed like science fiction to people even just a few decades ago. New technology on that front is being invented as you listen to this very podcast, but it all started with the great scientists that we've discussed today. Next week, we'll move on to the lungs. Like usual, special thanks to my editor, Jojo Tang, my cover artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for our music. Feel free always to reach out through the links in the show notes, and if you like what you hear, leave us a rating or review on iTunes, or just tell a friend.